Stuff Podcasts. Previously on The Commune. We'd heard the stories around the sex and drugs. Obviously that salacious angle even sells a free paper. I was told by Bert, you know, the children are community children now. If I tell you to break the law, you'll break the law and in time you won't even question it. This episode of The Commune contains strong language and references to drug use. Remember in episode 4 we met Rosemary McLeod, who gave us some context about the 70s and early 80s and the sexual revolution and the counterculture, and about the fears she had about Centrepoint at the time. Once you eliminate all the strings that tie us together in a way that make us work as a community, once you substitute for that blind obedience to a leader, the danger is obvious, you know. The conversation sort of roamed around. And I don't understand how educated people, intelligent people did what they did. I wonder what they say now. You know what, I'm just thinking, something you said before, it's educated and intelligent people who will take risks because I've got a soft landing. (laughs) So I wonder if almost that is sort of, you need to be educated and intelligent to have the sense of risk-taking that you'll go and do something as stupid as follow Bert. That's very true. When I was at university, there was some... Uh, I'll digress for a moment. When I was at university, terrible things happened. One of them was the bottling of Shorty. So this is the late 60s, and as Rosemary said, she was at university in Wellington, living in a house with other students and hanging out with other students. Shorty was an art student. He was part Maori. He was a friend of my boyfriend who was at that time an art student. One day, they threw a party at her place. It was supposed to be a small one, but things got a bit out of control. The place was packed and rowdy. Rosemary looked up and saw someone... Smash a bottle and shove it into the face of someone who turned out to be Shorty, who came stumbling out of the room with blood everywhere, blood down the hall, trail of blood, and into the bathroom... And I grabbed the phone. She wanted to call the police to ring for help. The phone was grabbed off me by the friends of the guy who'd done the bottling. I'm talking university students, right? Grabbed grabbed that off me and ran off with the broken bottle to get rid of the evidence. He disappeared for a while. I couldn't believe what was happening. I could not believe what quickly happened, how all these middle-class people formed a gang against the Maori. You follow me? This was happening in front of me. Ah, there were many details about behaviour that night that are seared in my memory. My boyfriend and I went down to make a statement, a full statement about what we saw. And independent people who'd been going up a pathway, you could see into the house, saw what happened. We all said the same thing. The middle class people all got together and they made up a story. It was fucking unbelievable. The case went to court, but... That guy got off. He's violent to this day. He's known to be violent. He's still an absolute bastard and a psychopath. I get tearful about it to this fucking day. 
Anyway, sorry, I'm bored you with that story. No, it, uh, it, quite, quite the opposite. It was a very complex. Experience. In fact, Rosemary's digression was somehow right on point. People from all backgrounds can do shitty things, but there are some people who just manage to get away with bad stuff. Sometimes it's about using your privilege, and sometimes it's just that people think they're above the law, that it doesn't apply to them. Now this is the law of the land. We're coming up against it now. We sort of bend it quite a lot. And people know we're bending it. And there are detectives around right now that are coming out next week who are going to really go into it and they're going to try and nail us on some uh, point of law where we have allowed our children some form of sexual freedom. I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 8, Lying Without Lying. Remember Ray Van Bainen, the cop who had been blocked in his first attempt to investigate Centrepoint, when his superior had a cup of tea with Bert Potter and then ordered him and his colleague Dean Thomas to back off? So, in the last episode, we told you that by 1989, Ray was in a different job. On the Auckland Drug Squad. Uh, And as a detective sergeant, I had the authority to decide what cases we would investigate. And so, yep, soon he's back on the Centrepoint case. I had the odd call from people there, but I started to get a little bit more again. And so I was able to build up a bit of a picture around, you know, what's happening. And then he gets something else, something really tangible. A couple of samples of the drugs that were being either manufactured or supplied or available there which verified the information. So we were able to get that tested by the ESR and they said, yep, that's certain, this is, not, this is not fake, this is real. The ESR are the government scientists who do forensic work for police. And of course those samples were real, right? By 1989, Centrepoint's drug era is in full swing, as we heard in the last episode. So now, Ray has enough evidence to act. But he's got a decision to make. We can either go through and target the whole community or you just target the head of it. And I always was a fan for targeting the head of it, being more surgical about it. So Potter and his inner circle, if you like, were the ones that we looked at. Herbert Thomas Potter, the head of the snake, for so long so untouchable, is now in the crosshairs of the police. And on September the 8th, 1989, Ray's team of about five detectives and a few uniformed officers arrive at Centrepoint. It would have been earliest in the morning. We just, there was no lights and signs. Call it a raid is probably a complete misstatement, really. It was just a search warrant was being executed and it was done quietly, professionally. Ray's team goes straight to Bert's house up the hill. He didn't have a lot to say for himself. He wouldn't make any admissions other than his blustering self. The team start the search for drugs and, well, it doesn't take long. It was just sitting in the kitchen cupboards and amongst the crockery and plates. It was very open, very brazen. And he just wasn't expecting that level of scrutiny. And it wasn't just... Uh, one type of drug, I think there were four types of drugs. There was LSD, there was ketamine, uh, there was there might have been some MDMA, which is a, a form of ecstasy. Uh, there was some cannabis and maybe some hash as well. So they were dealing quantities as well. So Bert, finally, is arrested. And yeah, like Ray said, it was really low-key. He thinks they didn't even put Bert in handcuffs. Bert is charged with supplying and possessing drugs and taken into custody. He's facing serious jail time. The community is in shock, but they rally around their guru. 
Bert's son, John Potter, writes in the Centrepoint magazine that this was almost inevitable, not because, you know, Bert was dishing out illegal drugs to everyone, but because, and these are John's words, Bert, quote, is a revolutionary and society is beginning to react to preserve the status quo. John goes on to say this sort of thing happens to all great spiritual leaders who challenge wider society. Maybe it's that attitude which played a part in what happened next, how the community reacted, and why some of them, at least, were prepared to do what they did. Maybe they genuinely felt Bert had been persecuted and didn't deserve to be locked up. Or maybe they'd been indoctrinated by Bert. Remember, he's the guy who Robert had heard saying to the community, If I tell you to break the law, you'll break the law, and in time, you won't even question it. While Bert was awaiting trial, he was released from prison on bail. Barry says within the community, there was a lot of discussion about the upcoming trial. At one point, Barry says Bert approached her about being a witness. Bert came to me and said, would I go on the stand to talk about the drug? I said, I'll go on the stand and say what we were trying to do for psychological growth, but I'm not going to lie. So I was sitting in the dining room, he just patted me on the head (laughs) and walked on. So Barry wasn't keen to lie. She was no use to Bert. But others were. And what actually happened is that people went up to the house up the back, the Gills Road house. The Gills Road house was where Bert and his wife were living and where the police had found the drugs. And they mapped out this perjury case. Perjury. The crime of giving false evidence to intentionally mislead a court. I agreed to go to the High Court and testify on Bert's behalf. This is Barbara, the counsellor who was one of the originals, who talked in the previous episode about the LSD trips. And I really hoped I could lie without lying. You know, I really thought I might be. I didn't know what was going to be said. I wanted to be able to lie without lying. Barbara was not alone. There were others in on the plan to cover for Bert. Barbara says she was driven by her belief that the drugs they were taking at Centrepoint really were for the good. Yeah, I thought it had a high therapeutic value. I think it was very wrong that it was given to the teenagers. But I didn't think about that then. I just thought that the uses were good. So when it came time for the trial, she went along to the court and... My perjury was that I was directly asked if I had seen Bert give drugs to teenagers in the Glade. And I said no. And I can still say I don't know if I actually did see it or not, but, I mean, I knew that they were given drugs in the Glade. The 10-day High Court trial against Bert actually heard from 25 witnesses for the defence, current and former community members standing up to sing his praises or lie on his behalf. At one point, Bert himself took the stand and said he had no idea that a container of what he thought was an organic pick-me-up was in fact LSD. As for the other drugs, he told the court, he didn't even know they were in his house. Which is interesting, if you recall that Ray said that... It was just sitting in the kitchen cupboards. The defence tried to suggest the drugs might have been planted by enemies of Centrepoint. On the other side, the prosecution had several powerful witnesses, including one of the Centrepoint pioneers. This guy was Mike, a former teacher who was there from day one. But 
He had left back in 1984, disgruntled with Bert and what was going on at the community. At one point, before he was arrested, Bert had gone to meet Mike. During that meeting, Bert boasted about the drug program he was running at Centrepoint, even confirming that drugs were being given to teenagers. Mike and his wife, who was also at that meeting, told the police about this and fronted up to the trial. In the end, despite all the lies from Bert's faithful, the jury didn't buy Centrepoint's story. Bert was found guilty of possession of ecstasy and LSD for supply, which basically means he had large quantities of the stuff. He was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. While handing down the sentence, the judge zeroed in on what he believed was behind Potter's offending. Even though the LSD alone was worth $15,000, the judge concluded that what was going on at Centrepoint was, quote, not a question of making money, it was a question of control. Which sounds right. Remember what Barry said in the last episode? She saw the sudden surge in drug use at Centrepoint as a ploy by Bert to claw back some respect and influence within the community. But with Bert now in jail, what was to become of Centrepoint? Stay tuned. You may have been a little intrigued at the reasons why you should do something. She holds and then go and do the things you'd like to do. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so, it's 1990. Bert Potter is in prison on drugs charges, and for the first time in its 12-year history, the commune is trying to figure out how to get by without its leader. Except, mm, that's not quite true. Bert is off in prison, sure, so physically he isn't there, But make no mistake, he still rules the place. Many people are still hanging on his every word. Initially, Bert is at Mount Eden, an imposing Victorian-era jail, brick, iron bars, all that, in central Auckland. But he's later moved to Uhura, a minimum security prison in the middle of nowhere in the central north island of Aotearoa, not far from Taumarunui. Right from the start of his stay, he starts writing letters to his followers, Often they're published in the Centrepoint magazine, long missives from the Messiah. He still talks about inside and outside, but of course, those terms mean very different things now. So, you are still out there living your lives. The dynamic that is Centrepoint goes on, even though I've been plucked out of it, he continues. And so, our lives go on in separate ways. Bert writes that the reason he's in prison is not because he broke the law. It's because the prosecution and the judges have failed to understand that society is hung up on money and power. He writes, It never occurred to them, he means the prosecutors and the judge, that our bonding together is based on loving and that power and money are not the important things in our lives. So, it's everyone else who has it wrong. Not Centrepoint and certainly not Bert. The letters keep Bert connected to the community. And once he's at Ohura, the community make plans to keep in regular physical contact as well. Here's Barry. 
who is a pretty small town, basically just the prison and some old houses. I think it used to be a coal mining town, so lots of old houses, pretty decrepit. Side note, the prison closed down in the mid-2000s. These days, Uhura is most famous, if that's the word, for an annual medieval market. You know, jousting and swords and preserves and jams. Anyway, back in the early 1990s, there was the prison and not much else. The community had hired a house near the prison at a very low rental. Yes, Centrepoint hires a house in Uhura so that each weekend... Members can go down on a roster basis, driving down in one of the communes. We had these white Toyota station wagons, so I think it was probably one of those. It was quite a haul all the way from Auckland to Uhura. I don't know, maybe five hours? One weekend, it was Barry's turn to visit Bert. I think it must have sort of come around my turn. It was quite a big deal to go <laughs> to go to Uhura for the weekend. So she and her partner at the time hop in the car to drive down to Uhura. As they're about to leave, someone gives them something to deliver to Bert. This box of food. They eventually get there, settle into the rental place, then go along to the prison to visit Bert. Remember, Uhura is a minimum security prison, so it's pretty low-key. Bert's wearing his inmate tracksuit, sitting waiting for them at a picnic area in the prison next to a wooden fence. And then there's just a big courtyard, a grass area with just basic New Zealand wooden table with benches all around and just family groups and put the picnic box on the table and, you know, Bert hoed in. Bert's not just interested in the food, though. There's something else. I think it was a light bulb or something. Bert needs this light bulb. And he just scrabbled in the box, picked that out, so I guess he'd been told <laughs> the light bulb, and just kicked it under the fence behind him and got it, Joe. It's a literal light bulb moment. Bert finds this light bulb that he's expecting to be in the box, kicks it under the fence and says, got it, Joe? Barry is a bit stunned, thinking... Did that really happen? It's not till later that she figures out she's been an unwitting mule bringing drugs into the prison, which Bert has quickly smuggled to another inmate. This wasn't the only odd thing about that visit. Barry noticed Bert was acting weird, jumping all over the place in his conversation. We've got to have another community. We need a big block of land. We've got to be able to have this many hundred people. And then he'd switch. The community's getting too materialistic. It's all about money. I don't want it to be about money. It's got to be about love. And then Bert went on a big rant. Drugs are just what we really, really need. When I come home for the weekend, <laughs> home leave, I want a big extravaganza of drugs. We really need some more money, so, you know, I think we could get LSD out to the gangs. Remember, this is a guy in prison on drugs charges, and he's talking about how Centrepoint should double down and become suppliers of LSD to the gangs. It was just bizarre. It was a crazy idea, but in fact, perhaps not as crazy as it seemed to Barry at the time. Because back at Centrepoint, even with Bert out of the picture, the drugs epoch hadn't ended. Far from it. It became pretty obvious that the drug offending was being ramped up rather than cut back. This is Ray, the cop, again. And so we'd been unsuccessful in terms of trying to close that down. The head of the snake thing hadn't quite worked. Hadn't quite worked because a few other heads always popped up and that vacuum was filled. But Potter's main issue was financial. He was always very conscious of income. 
and he'd spent a lot of money, and the community had spent a lot of money. Legal bills ain't cheap. Potter, I think, saw that this was a, a way to kill two birds with one stone. One was to continue the drug use and, and distribution of drugs, but do it on a commercial scale and make money out of it. And so they started to do that. And that wasn't the only thing that Ray and the police noticed. With Bert in prison, that whole dynamic of a closed-down community, a community where people wouldn't come forward to the police and say what was really going on, that was over. It's really like ripping the scab off a, off a wound or a, or a plaster, really, because it was only after we convicted him that all of a sudden we were getting a lot more people coming forward, particularly young people, because the way they explained it to me was he was a god or a demigod. He was able to walk around that community and his word was absolute. It was almost life and death stuff. So they were very surprised and shocked that the establishment or the community or the law would intervene and be successful because Potter always taught them that he was almost untouchable. We're outside the hoi polloi down there and what we're doing is right and we'll just carry on and live our own lives and, and so forth. So they then realise he's not untouchable, that people will take action against him and that they probably have a voice, they will be heard. The thing was, there were plenty of people with other things to tell the police, not just about drugs. Behind the scenes, a number of women who'd been young girls at the commune, well, they had things to say. But the point is that we don't allow ourselves this closeness, we don't allow ourselves this touching, this just being together. It's just not the thing to do. Over the past year, we've spent a lot of time talking to Barry. If there's anyone or anything connected to Centrepoint, chances are she knows about it or knows who will know. She's also got a trove of stuff, like those tapes. Well, this is just a small selection of tapes out of a huge number. And at one point, she mentioned some documents. It was just as we were leaving last time we mentioned that. I can't remember where we got to with that. I've got boxes and boxes, and I, it's a project to sort them through, but they're very disorganised. So, yeah, I'm not sure You're not. where you want to start. I mean, documents, we can help with that. We're game for the adventure of looking through a box of random stuff to see what we find, if you're okay with that. So don't, don't protect us from the chaos, but if you don't want to give it to us, that's cool. Okay. So one day, we backed the car up and loaded up the boot with boxes and boxes of Centrepoint documents. Collectively, we started calling them Barry's Hoard. Barry was right. The boxes were disorganised. But they were full of things we didn't know, and of things that helped producer Eugene and me understand things better. Affidavits, media cuttings, reports. And then, some stuff that reminded us again how extraordinarily open Barry is about her past mistakes and her own role in the harm caused by Centrepoint. Because some of the stuff she handed to us didn't reflect very well on Barry herself. For instance, there are copies of these letters that she wrote to Bert in prison. Remember, at this point she's still living at Centrepoint, but she's concluded that the child abuse, incidents like the girl on the lawn, were definitely wrong, no matter what Bert or others might say. In some letters, sure, she is pushing back at Bert a bit and pointing out to him the damage he's caused. We've got an actor to read from these letters. I do know it's going to take quite a while to clean up the mess, in a healing sense and in a legal financial sense. But at the same time, often in the same letters, 
She's letting Bert know what's going on behind the scenes, even informing him about his various accusers and what they're saying. It's not just correspondence with Bert. In one letter, Barry is writing to a mother of one of the girls who has alleged sexual abuse and who is talking to the police, and Barry is strongly suggesting to this mother that the courts are not the place to sort all this out. She's saying it won't be the offenders going to jail who will be punished by that, but their families. Certainly we were stupid, naive and ignorant 10 to 13 years ago, but that doesn't mean we have to go on making mistakes and hurting more children. The ignorance, Bert's and everyone else's, appalls her, Barry says to this mother, but there was never any intention to damage anyone. Remember, this is a letter to the mother of a child who is saying Bert sexually abused her and Barry is making excuses for the abuser. And what makes it worse is she's also informing Bert about some of these side conversations she's having. Big picture, Barry's intentions appear to be good. This is from another letter to Bert. I want to facilitate the healing because I want to move on. It's old to me, but somehow we cannot move on until those girls are healed. For some reason, they're not getting healed out there. The situation is stuck. I'm convinced that it is us that has to make the moves. It is our problem too, because they're all still family. They're still our daughters. And it's not just airy-fairy, I want to help stuff here. At one point, Barry and others actually facilitated a hui, a meeting, at Centrepoint, and invited along anyone who had a grievance. We asked her about that. I invited all the troubled families from outside to talk about these issues, what they'd learnt, how their families were affected, and anyone from the community who wanted to understand come up as well, and we talk it through and we work out what to do. I think I was hoping there wouldn't be criminal charges, but just wanting to hear what people had to say and how it affected, because we were starting to get a group of, especially mothers, wanting to make a stand about this. Of course, Barry later writes to Bert about the hui and what has been said, including the fact that child abuse had been a big topic of discussion. The difficulty in the sex with underage children area is that no one believes anything we say because they say we have a history of denial in the early days and in the trial this year. They don't want to believe us and then find out in time that they've been gullible mugs. It's just unfathomable. Barry has come to realise that the child's sex was wrong and damaging. But she's engaging with the prime offender, trying to talk the community and its accusers through this mess and to talk Bert around. Is it just good faith stupidity? More naivety? I asked Barry about it. During that time where you're kind of looking for different ways to fix things, Mm -hmm. um, you were talking quite directly to some of the victims about the abuse, but you're also still talking to Bert, including talking about what you're talking about with them. It's almost something of a double agent about what you're doing then. I mean, is that that how you saw it? Still somehow believing that, no, he was a human being, an intelligent human being who, who would get it. I mean, how naive. But, I, but that's where it was. If we can explain this, he'll see it, he'll get it, and, and he'll go, okay, that social experiment failed. We need to change on the new evidence. But, but how, um, con- how conflicted did you feel at that personally in terms of 
sort of almost for a time you were kind of playing both sides. Was that um, was that difficult, or uh, you know, did you feel I, I, murky there about it? There were times it? when I was quite secretive. It was quite secretive, sort of double agent. Yes, yes. But it was. It was Barry knows yeah, in hindsight this that this is just, just Batty. You can hear her in real time struggling yeah, to explain was, it all. I think it was more that. <laughs> Sorry, um, you can cut this out. Can't you? <laughs> um, to help explain her mindset back then, she tells us a story from this time. She had secretly stashed some money that had come to her from a family estate into a personal bank account. It was during a phase when she thought that the answer to this historic abuse was to bring mothers and daughters together to talk. Let's work this out, and I still, I still didn't understand sexual abuse the traumatic effects of it. She used some of the money to help one mother and daughter reunite by helping with travel costs. She must have reported that to the police who checked out, was this money coming from Sandport? And you can see why the police would be interested. At the time they're looking into sexual abuse allegations at Centrepoint, here's a prominent Centrepoint figure giving one of the victim's families some money. It was not a good look. But that's where Barry was at. She was blinded to the idea that the thing to do right now would be to get out of the way and let the police deal with this. Instead, she thought she could sort this mess out by talking to everyone and getting everyone talking to each other. Yeah, um... It's a lot to take in, right? You've got Barry running around trying to be the saviour, trying to protect, well, everyone. A mission impossible. Part of it, of course, was that although she'd reached the point where she knew the sex abuse was wrong, she still loved Centrepoint. But Centrepoint was on the brink. Let the children see what happens. Let them experience it. Let them get into it. One of the things that... This place that, for more than a decade, had been held together by this fast-talking guru with an overpowering speech patter, with his penetrating gazes and acutely perceptive feedback... The man who dished out psychoactive drugs to adults and children alike, who manipulated the consensus decision-making process to make sure the community bent to his will, he's now sitting in a prison cell in Uhura, hundreds of kilometres away. It's like the tectonic plates of Centrepoint are shifting. Keith, the former GP and missionary and one-time chairman of the Centrepoint Trust, he leaves. Former children of Centrepoint are talking to the police about what they went through. And in the middle, there's Barry, flailing, still trying desperately to make Bert see the truth. She told producer Eugene and me that on that trip down to Uhura, she'd decided, this is it. I have to convince him. That had been part of my mission, that weekend to sort of get him to understand some of these things. But just seeing none of what I was saying computed and he was just into his thing. So you've gone there to try and convince him, hey, we we need to front up to this. And instead he's talking about these mad schemes of buying property and dealing drugs with the gangs and things like that. Yes, yes, yes. And just... Mm-hmm. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. But Barry finally gets it. Nothing can stop this. Not even her. Centrepoint. 
For so long, this place has enjoyed a sheltered existence in the bush at Albany, hunkering down and riding out everything that lashed it. The council scraps, those early child sex allegations from Robert, even the imprisonment of its leader. Now, though, something really big is coming. And this time, it's impossible to imagine how Centrepoint can ride it out. episode 8 of The Commune, a stuff production. It was researched, written and produced by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell at Digicake. Music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash the commune.